0: Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to look with you this morning at Paul's final evaluation of his life and think with you about the reward for those who will equip the saints. We've been thinking this year about equipping the saints. What is the reward for doing that? Paul's insight into his own life is helpful As we think about that second Timothy chapter four, let me read verses one through eight and then lead us in prayer before we come to this text. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word and be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths but you and be sober in all things endure hardship do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry for i am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all. Who have loved his appearing. Would you come with me to the throne of God's grace please. Father we thank you. For. So many who have gone before us. Who have been faithful. Who have not abdicated the faith. But under. The harshest of circumstances. Have remained faithful to you lived lives in compliance to the doctrine of faith and been faithful in their character and their nature. Paul was certainly one of these. But these pages in the book that is before us are filled with such men. And history as well reminds us of the great army of people whom you have raised up to serve you who have been faithful And as we come to this text this morning, might we be encouraged in similar faithfulness and might we be motivated rightly by the reward that lies ahead for Paul and for all of us who have loved and look forward to anticipate and delight in the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Winning the greatest sports contests and the prizes that come with them is exceedingly rare. When the Texas Rangers won the World Series this year, there were but 26 players on their roster. In a few weeks, there will be a Super Bowl being played and a little over 50 men will be on the winning team that gets the prize of holding the Lombardi Trophy. World Cup teams that win that event once only four years are comprised by rosters of only 26 men. It is few and far between the numbers of men who gain the greatest glories on the athletic field. Think about the Olympics and individual competitions, and every four years only one gets the glory of a gold medal. But perhaps the rarest of all sports prizes is an Olympic medal named after the founder of the modern Olympics, Pierre de Cobertin. This prize was instituted in 1964, and between the Summer and Winter Olympics from 1964 until today, only 17 individuals have received the Cobertin medal. The Cobertin medal is designed to comprise the spirit of the Games, and it is rewarded to some athlete. That particularly embodies the Olympic spirit of competition. Of those 17 athletes that have won the medal, 16 existed and competed between 1964 and our present day. One was awarded posthumously, it was awarded to the German long jumper Lutz Long, who befriended the American long jumper Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics that were held in Munich and before the grandstand containing Adolf Hitler, Luz put his arm around and embraced the African-American Jesse Owens. And for that accomplishment, he was posthumously awarded this award. It is perhaps the most rare athletic accomplishment Seeing athletes raise a trophy or a medal over their heads in victory is satisfying both for the athlete and for those who follow him and his supporters. But frankly, most of us can only imagine what it would be like to take that gold medal and hold it up in our hands or to raise a trophy over our heads. We don't know that. We will not compete in those kind of competitions And our ability to gain those awards is rare to nil. But for the believer in Jesus Christ. There's a better day coming. It is a day of reward that is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ for our efforts in serving him. The rewards on that day when Christ gives them out are exceedingly rare because they are of infinite value. But they are attainable because every believer in Jesus Christ will enjoy them. The past few weeks, we've been thinking about the theme for ministry for this year, kind of wrapping up the year around our topic, equipping the saints. We've talked about the goal of equipping. We've talked about the people who equip. We talk about the character of the equippers We've talked about the way that we equip. And today I want to answer the question, why do we equip others? Why do we expend ourselves in caring for others? Why do we pay the costs that we pay in order to care for others? And from this final letter of the Apostle Paul, from the final chapter in the final letter, the the last words before he himself went into martyrdom, We're going to find in these verses this truth. We serve the Lord by equipping His people because a reward is coming. There is a great day coming in which God will reward His people. As we think about ministry and we think about pouring ourselves out and we think about equipping others, we understand that there is not only hardship in life, but there is hardship in ministry. Ministry is not complicated. The, 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 the focus of ministry and what we do in ministry is really quite simple. It's it's uncomplicated. We administer the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and we pour ourselves out in helping people to be sanctified by that gospel. It's not complex, but brothers and sisters, it's hard, isn't it? At times it is wearying. Paul, in fact, in numerous places calls it toil. And we're going to see that in the text this morning. But what we find in this passage is that the effort is worth it because of the reward that is coming. Someone has noted that in these verses, verses 6 through 8, there is an emphasis on the past Uh, Excuse me, emphasis on the present. That's verse 6. I am already right now being poured out. On the past, I have fought the good fight. That's verse 7. And on the future, verse 8. In the future, there's laid up for me this reward. And that's true. There is past, present, future in all of these verses. And yet, there is underneath all of them this reflection of looking backwards and anticipating the evaluation that will come from Christ in the future. So verse 6, he says, The time of my departure has come. It's time to leave. I'm looking forward to the the leaving time. Verse 7, I've fought the good fight. I've finished. I've kept. And and when he says those things, he's looking back and evaluating, even as Christ himself will evaluate in the future. And again, verse 8, in the future. So all these verses are not just looking back past, present, future, but all of them are anticipating what lies ahead for him. And these verses are Paul's final exhortation to his beloved disciple to persist, to endure, to persevere to the end of ministry. When ministry is hard, continue serving Christ and his people Because our expectation of reward is sure. Brothers and sisters, as you anticipate the end of life and all of us, whether we are the littlest among us or the oldest among us, ought to be anticipating the end of life and thinking about what lies ahead. As you anticipate those days, remember three principles for equipping others, three motivations, if you will, three Ideas that drive us as we pour ourselves out in equipping others. The first is given to us in verse 6. Remember, one continual cost for those who will equip. Remember, one continual cost for equippers. As Paul begins verse 6, he is writing in a sense his headstone for his grave marker. He's writing his epitaph. This is this is the final word from the Apostle Paul on his life. It's his evaluation. It's his looking backwards. It is, we might say, the summation of his life. He's looking back and thinking, how do I evaluate? How do I think about my life? But as he is doing that, he's also making a connection in the text. Did you notice verse 6 and how it begins? and when we see that word for we understand that he's giving a reason for something that he has already said and what has he said well in verse 1 he has initiated a charge a call on Timothy that Timothy is to do something and specifically in verse 2 he says to Timothy preach the word and as you preach the word verse 5 be sober be sober In all things, serious-minded, attentive, uncompromising, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, Fulfill your ministry, because. So he is calling Timothy to do something. He's giving Timothy a reason for everything that he's called him to do in those five verses. And the reason is that Paul is about to depart and go into eternity. Paul's had perhaps the greatest ministry from Jesus for Jesus Christ that this earth has ever seen. Influential beyond earthly measure. Powerful impact. Planting multiple churches. Writing virtually half the New Testament, at least by number of books. Tremendously influential man. And his ministry is over. He is calling Timothy now to continue on the same course of ministry that he has set. And then verse 5, to be sober, to endure, to evangelize, to continue, to fulfill. In other words, Timothy must remain behind so that the ministry of Paul can continue As Paul thinks about the summation of his life, he's thinking about the end of his life. He's not just evaluating good or bad. He's recognizing there's an end and there's a brevity and there's a cessation to his ministry. As you think about history, as you think about the history of the church, that history is a story of how God uses remarkable men and unremarkable men to influence each generation. And this is a subtle reminder to us that God is never dependent on one individual, no, no matter how remarkable he is. He is not dependent on the power of the individual because the power of the individual to change people's lives is non-existent. Individuals don't change life, lives, the Spirit of God does. People don't change lives, the Word of God does. And God is not dependent on people. God is dependent on the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That's what changes people. And he is reminding Timothy of the importance of continuing on that legacy of administering the Word when he is gone. And think about this passage, Paul to Timothy, and how that has been the story of God's people. So Abraham was followed by Isaac, was followed by Jacob, and was followed by Joseph and the eleven patriarchs. Elijah was followed by Elisha and 7,000 other unnamed prophets who were faithful to God. Samuel was followed by Saul, was followed by David, was followed by Solomon, was followed by many kings of Israel both good and evil, who fulfilled God's purposes. Even Judas, who was a rebellious, quote-unquote, follower, was succeeded by and followed by Matthias. Peter was replaced by John Mark, and now Paul will be succeeded by Timothy. There are time limits for every minister and every ministry. And so as Paul looks back and he thinks about his ministry and the ebbing of his ministry and the, the advent of Timothy to take over and supplant and replace and carry on his ministry, be reminded and encouraged that when you and I pass away, the gospel and the word and the ministry will not be compromised and will not be left without a testimony. God always has his faithful people. He has provided them for us, and he will for the next generation as well. So Paul was being purposeful in providing for the next generation. In fact, we find that in the second chapter of this letter. Remember what he said to Timothy? The things you've heard from me. Then the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men and they will be able to teach others also. And there Paul is thinking about the progression of ministry over four generations. Paul taught Timothy, Timothy taught others, and those others taught still others. And the ministry perpetuates. Paul is gone, but God is not left without a witness. I want you to notice as well that not only is Paul thinking about the summation of life, his life, but he is preparing Timothy For his life of ministry. And Paul was concerned for Timothy. And he wants to leave Timothy direction as he's parting. Because he sees his imminent end. Notice what he says in verse 6. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Even while he wrote. Paul was aware that the end of his life was imminent. The word already. Already has the connotation, my death has already begun. It's now. And he it seems that he is particularly aware because the legal process to which he had appealed is now turning against him to lead him into martyrdom. And we see that even just a few verses down. Just scan down to the next section in the page. Verse 14, Alexander the copper smith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds, but be a guard against him yourself. For he vigorously opposed our teaching at my first offense. No one supported me. All deserted me. It's all turning against him. And it is clear that his life is ebbing. And Paul uses a particular figure of speech to denote the passing of his life. He says in verse 6, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And the meaning with that is very clear as well, isn't it? His death is soon. And it's, it's emphasized the soonness, the suddenness of it, the, the certainty of it is emphasized by the fact that when he says poured out, he uses a present tense which means it's already happening. It's not just in the distant future. I mean, we say, well, one day I will die. And I say that and I think, well, one day I will die. Like, you know, like years from now, like decades from now. We don't know. Paul had no such expectation. He sees it soon. He has his death sentence and he's ready. That little phrase being poured out as a drink offering was used secularly to refer to a drink offering being poured out on the ground to honor a pagan deity. And in a similar way, Paul sees his life as being poured out in worship of God. And that phrase, though, was not just looking at a secular activity, but it was a reference back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And after the Jewish priest would bring an animal sacrifice to the altar, perhaps a lamb or a ram or a bull, As part of that same act of sacrifice and worship, he would provide a drink offering in which he would pour out next to the altar a container of wine. And that's that drink offering that Paul is referring to. Like that offering at the altar that was poured out, my life is being poured out and the vessel is empty. As Paul sees, visualizes the last drops of wine coming out of that vessel, so he sees the last moments of his life being poured out as well. He is certain it's coming. Notice the next phrase in verse 6. The time of my departure has come. There's yet another euphemism for death. Like a ship pulling up anchor, and sailing away. So Paul says the end of his life is near, says one commentator. The hour has struck. The time has come. And this is not the only time he has anticipated or even desired and longed for death so that he might go to be with his savior. He is certain of his, of its reality. But, but note this. Despite the reality of its coming, he is not fearful. In fact, he has noted in verses 14 to 16 that everyone has deserted him. The system of legal justice is turning against him. Notice verse 17, but the Lord stood with me, no one else, but I had the Lord and he strengthened me. So that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. And that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. That was the past. I was rescued out. Now notice verse 18. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. How will he do that? And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. How does he rescue him from every evil deed? By allowing him to die and taking him home. And that's the day that is in front of the Apostle Paul. He's not afraid, but he is aware the time is just about over. As Paul evaluates his present condition, he is also not only preparing Timothy But he is preparing us for the nature of care in the church. He's reminding us of the cost of serving others. Of building into others. Of building Christ's church. And equipping the saints. It is a reality that caring for one another in the church is not always easy. Think about Romans chapter 16, that great chapter in which so many people are identified in in the Roman church and for their work. He says about Mary in verse 6 of Romans 16. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. That's that word toil, labor, strife, difficulty, sweat. Greet verse 12. Tryphena and tryphoso, workers in the Lord. Greet, purchase the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. That's that word again, toil, labor, sweat. And we find this repeatedly in Paul's letters. Caring for one another in the church is often costly. And being obedient to Christ and following Christ and fulfilling ministry duties will cost us. It will cost us deeply. I'm not talking about just preachers and elders. I'm talking about church member. You will sacrifice and you will labor. It'll be hard work. You'll be pouring over text. You've got to, you've got to teach sixth grade Sunday school and you're trying to wrap your head around the meaning of the text and you're not getting it and you're pouring out until you understand what that passage means. It's hard work. And others will come and they'll come with griefs and sorrows and they'll call in the middle of the night and they'll call at inopportune times and they'll say, I need help. And you say, let me come right over. And you come and you minister to them. That's costly. It'll cost you finances and it'll cost you time. It'll cost you energy. It'll cost you sleep. And brothers and sisters, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's Paul's example. And it's the example of persecution and martyrdom all throughout the Scripture. And it's examples of persecution and martyrdom all through history. I just picked up briefly this week a book I've thumbed through numerous times over the years, J.C. Ryle's book, Five English Reformers. If not ever read that, you need to read that. It's based on Fox's book of martyrs, and he tells the story of five important reformers. And I read again the story of Latimer and Ridley who were martyred on the street of London and I couldn't, couldn't keep from weeping. So I read of the faithfulness, faithfulness of these men who gave their lives for Jesus Christ. It's going to cost you. Ministry isn't easy. There's a weightiness to it. Jesus reminds the disciples even of that reality. Luke chapter 14. Which of you, when he wants to build a tower, verse 28, does not sit down first and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and he's not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not, first down to sit, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one that is coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation. He asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. You've got to count the cost. That was Jesus' message to Peter right before his ascension, John chapter 21, as he told him about the way that he would die. Don't think that life and ministry will be easy when you follow Christ. If you're committed to following him and serving him and caring for his people, it will cost you. And Paul's point in these verses is to help us to remember the cost, but also to understand that the cost... Is worth paying. It's worth paying the cost. Paul's point in the verses that follow. Is to emphasize that very reality. It will cost you. But don't despair. In the sacrifices. Yes you'll sacrifice. But don't despair. It will be paid back to you. A hundred times over. Listen what Jesus says. Mark chapter 10, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. We paid the cost. We left it all behind. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake But that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Along with persecutions. Yeah, it's hard. You're going to give up everything and you will be persecuted. But you'll get it back now here. And then he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. A hundred times back now, and an eternity infinite. Now, I was never very good in math, but that seems like a good trade off to me. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's costly to serve, and it's worth everything we will pay. So, Piper has written Christians lean toward need, not comfort, toward love. Not safety, because that's what our Savior's like. It will cost, but the cost is worthwhile. That's one principle to remember. The continual cost for equippers. Notice this as well. One final purpose for equippers. Verse 7. One final purpose for equippers in this verse. The Apostle provides three analogies to make one fundamental point. And the analogies all point towards faithfulness to Christ. Our goal is to remain faithful. The first two of these analogies, it's a little bit unclear whether he's talking about a military setting, fought the good fight, followed by an athletic setting, I've finished the course. But it seems most likely, given the fact that in verse 8 he's talking about an athletic reward, a a, a crown, a wreath that's placed on him for athletic um, success, it's probable that he has both athletic things in mind in verses 7 and 8. First of all, a a boxing or wrestling match with the fight, and then an athletic event, a running event by finishing the course. As you meditate on this verse, as Paul evaluates his life, don't just think, well, this is this was Paul's deal. This was only for Paul, as he's going to make clear at the end of verse eight, it's not just about him. This is about everybody. This is all of our calling. This is all of our test. This is all of our evaluation. Notice what he says. I fought the good fight. That's that boxing analogy, perhaps, that he's alluding to in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 about buffeting his body so that he can prepare himself for that boxing match. And notice what he says about the fight. He says the fight is good. It's a good fight. He is not evaluating his participation in the boxing match as it were, though. He's not saying, I did my job well. I did good. That's bad English, but it was good Greek. Um, He's not saying, I've done well. He's saying the fight is good. There's a goodness and a beauty and a righteousness in the fight itself. There's an inherent beauty in the fight, which means that when we have to fight for endurance and perseverance, brothers and sisters, hear me, nothing has gone wrong. God has designed us for this fight. He's made us for this fight. He's equipped us for this fight. He's given us armor, Ephesians chapter 6, for this fight. And it is good for us. He has designed the spiritual life as a fight. There is labor in the fight. There's hardship in the fight. In fact, when he says, I have fought a good fight, both those words are related, one's a verb and one's a noun. They come from the same root and they come from that root that we've already seen this morning. It's toil, it's sweat, it's labor. It's that I've got to go out and fix my sprinkler system because I've got water spraying all over the place and I've got to dig a hole a couple feet down and dig this trench and it's 108 outside. And you don't go and do that task without sweating and laboring and getting dirty. That's this word. Labor. It's hardship. It was that way from Paul, for Paul. And it will be that way for us. So that we will all learn to depend on Christ. It's encouraging, my brothers. When Paul can say about his life, the end is in sight. And I've fought I've labored, I've persevered, I've done what God has called me to do. And notice this as as well, just because it's a fight and just because it's hard doesn't mean we'll be defeated. Paul looks back and says, I'm not defeated. It is in the hardness of the fight that we will particularly see the grace of God. If the fight is not a fight, but a nap. You won't ever need to depend on Christ. But when the fight is a fight, you will run to the only one who can help you. And that's Christ. And he will be sufficient. That's verse 17. The Lord is with me. That's verse 18. The Lord will take me home. When the Lord is with us and we're in the fight. That's enough. Notice this as well. Not only has he fought the good fight, but he says, I have finished the course. We might say, I've reached the end of the race. I did it all. Nothing more needs to be done. Interestingly, Paul says something very similar to the Ephesian elders when he met them in Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem from which he appealed to Rome and was sent back to Rome. So this is several years earlier now. Acts chapter 20, he says to the Ephesian elders, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, he's still looking forward. He's on the back stretch perhaps. But he's still in the middle of the race and he is... Looking at the finish line, he says, it's far ahead of me, but that's where I'm going. And in this chapter, he's reached the finish line. He snapped the tape, as it were, and gotten to the end. And he says, I've finished. It's done. And notice when he says, I've finished the course, he doesn't say, I won the race. Winning, quote unquote, isn't the goal. Finishing is the goal. Completing God's objective is the goal. Faithfulness is the goal. And he achieved the goal. It's notable that Paul is not the only person to evaluate his life in this way as he was about to enter death. The Gospels recount the words of another individual who in a similar way was facing death. And when Jesus Christ had finished absorbing God's wrath against sin on the cross, he said, it is finished. The goal's been finished. The goal's been met. My life is complete Everything that the Father has given me to do, I've accomplished, it's finished. And it is the very same word that Paul uses here. And brothers and sisters, isn't that an encouragement to you? That as Christ evaluates his ministry, Paul can use that same word to say, I've been faithful to the Lord to finish what he's called me to do. Yeah, there's hardness in ministry But the encouragement is that while there are hardships, the course set before us by God is not unattainable. All he has called us to do, he also equips us to do, and we can finish well. Notice the last thing that Paul says about this labor in the fight. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. That is, Paul has remained faithful and true to Christ. He's kept on believing like an athlete that takes an oath to abide by the rules, Paul has lived by the truth of Christ. He's called Timothy to be faithful. He has called Timothy to fight. He has called Timothy to finish. And everything that he has called Timothy to do, he himself also has done. He has preserved the gospel and been faithful to Christ. He's done his job in serving Christ. And you take all of these analogies in this verse and they focus on this one fundamental principle. I've been faithful That's the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life and the goal of ministry is not to save people. We can't. That's the work of the Spirit. Our goal isn't to build a church to a particular number. We can't. Our goal simply is to be faithful with the gospel, faithful with the word, faithful with the ministry he's called us to, and then watch to see what he does and just be faithful to the end so that we too, like Paul, snap the tape at the end and say, I finished. I've been faithful, Lord. Our goal is faithfulness and endurance to do what he has called us and gifted us to do. And when we do that, there are no regrets and we can rest that he considers us faithful and will say at the end well done good and faithful servant that's the goal that's our purpose to what end because we have one great hope as equippers verse 8 here's what drives paul to pay the cost here's what drives paul to stay faithful its reward In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It's laid up for me. Notice he doesn't say it will be laid up. Now he will get it in the future, but it's not being provided in the future. It's already there. It's already been provided. It's present tense. It's already there and it is already being preserved and guarded, protected by a heavenly century. That's why we read First Peter chapter one this morning. You are uh, you you will obtain verse four, first Peter one, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away. It is reserved already in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your salvation is already secure. You just haven't seen the full revelation of it yet. It's there. This is a certain desire. This is a certain reality. And as Paul thinks about that reward that is coming... And the scriptures speak a great deal about rewards for us. Notice that he is anticipating a particular reward. Notice verse 8. has laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It could be the crown which is the source of righteousness. Or it is the crown that is given for righteousness. Because the person is righteous. Or because the person is declared righteous. And there is a sense in which they're both true. The person who gets the crown has to be declared righteous by God. He can't affect his own righteousness on his own. So it is that. And it also is the final gift of righteousness. Because of what James and Paul uh, and John say about similar crowns, the crowns of life in James 1 and Revelation 2, it seems that he is speaking about a crown which denotes just, justification or righteousness. It is the crown in which we receive the final payment provision of full righteousness. It is This righteousness is, is the victor's wreath. For the believer in Jesus Christ, Paul says, I'm laboring for this because one day ahead for me is final righteousness when every vestige of sin will be removed. I will never sin again. I will never have a desire for sin, a longing for sin, even the slightest of inclinations towards sin. All of that will be removed. And that crown will be rewarded, he says, of righteousness from the Lord. The righteous judge. Christ who is righteous and who can give righteousness based on his work on the cross, the one who is judge in all righteousness and evaluates and sees our hearts will give to him that crown. But Paul's not speaking self self servingly. Notice what he says, end of the verse not only to me, but to all. Who have loved his appearing. The crown, brothers and sisters, is not just for Paul, it's for all believers. If you love Jesus Christ and you long for him, if you are dependent on him for your righteousness, if you love him and want fellowship with him, fellowship that is such that you cannot wait for his coming. I love his appearing because I want him to come so I can be with him and enjoy his fellowship. Then you get the crown. He's talking about relationship that has been granted through the cross and through the blood, wiping away our sin, infusing or not infusing, but declaring us to be righteous. And then lastly, Infusing us with this final righteousness. That we see in this verse. But notice this. You've got to love Christ for it. It is only for those who have loved. His appearing. You got to want him. You have to. You have to desire him. People who are significantly wealthy. I mean, I'm talking like not a few million, but like billions. Talk about the difficulty of find, finding friends. Why? I never know if they want me or they want my money. And we can do the same thing with the Lord. God, take, get rid of my sin problem. Get rid of my relational problems. Get rid of my financial problems. Get rid of my work problems. And I'll trust you and follow you. Do you want Christ? Yeah, I don't know. I just want out of my problems. That's not faith. you got to want him. Listen, if you can conceive of heaven and all the beauty that is in heaven, the streets of gold and, 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 and the gates that are made out of pearls and, 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 and the vastness and the power and the authority that's there and eternal life and Christ isn't there, and you're okay with that, then you have not believed the gospel. The gospel is designed to get you to God, to have fellowship with Him. And it could be that you're here. It could be that you're completely orthodox in your theology. You would affirm everything that, I, that we always teach in every setting around here. An entrusted this afternoon, or Awana, or home group, or Sunday school, or from the pulpit. You say, yeah, amen, amen, amen. But you don't want Christ. You don't long for Him. Then, brother or sister, you need Christ. You need to trust Him. And I would call you to confess your sin of lack of love for Christ and ask Him to forgive you of the greatest sin of not loving Him and infusing you or uh, accounting to you His righteousness So that you can be declared righteous and have fellowship with Him. You want Him. Would you ask Him for that? If you haven't done so already. There is one final note I want you to observe in verse 8. And it's implied here. But Paul is subtly telling us that it is legitimate to work for Christ's reward. We're not sullied. By working for reward when we want Christ. Because he is the great reward. When we follow Christ and long for him, what we get is him. When we love him, we purify ourselves, 1 John chapter 3, and we see him. It's all about him and fellowship with him. In his book, the problem with of the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis writes this: We are afraid that heaven is a bribe, and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. There are rewards that do not sully motives. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry mercenary because he wants to read it, nor his love of exercise less disinterested because he wants to run and leap and walk. Love, by definition, seeks to enjoy its object. That's what love for Christ does. It leads us to delight in him. The previous passage that we have looked at calls us to labor, to work, to preach, to endure. How do we endure? We endure, brothers and sisters, by remembering the reward we get, Christ. William Borden was a member of the borden Dairy family. And he was an heir to all of the wealth of that family. 1904, he graduated from high school in Chicago and his family gave him a trip to Europe as a graduation present. Pretty nice deal. And so he went on that trip and on that trip, he developed a particular salvation, a particular longing for the salvation of the lost, particularly for those in the East and even the Far East. After that trip, he came home. He went to Yale University for four years. And following that, he went to Princeton Seminary for three more years for his seminary education. And there he studied under the great theologian J. Gresham Machin. It is during those years that he opened the back of his Bible and penned two words in the back. No reserves. Not keeping anything for myself. It's not for me to keep. His family pleaded with him to take over the family business. It was struggling at that particular time. But he refused, saying that he had a call from God on his life and on his ministry. And he wanted to go to the mission field. He didn't want to take over the business. And in fact, he not only didn't want to take over the business, he gave away all the wealth that he inherited. And during those years, giving away the wealth under that phrase, no reserves, he wrote two more words. No retreat. On his way to China. To witness to the Muslims there. While in Egypt. He contracted spinal meningitis. Excuse me. Cerebral meningitis. And within a month. He was in glory. It seemed that. His life was wasted. Wealthy man. Tremendous education. All the promise of the future. Everything ahead of him. It's wasted. It's gone. And after he had passed away, someone found his Bible, opened his Bible to the back flyleaf, saw those two phrases, and saw that he had written two final words. No regrets. No regrets. He knew that the Lord does not require success in living, as we define it, only faithfulness. Life and ministry are hard. God calls us to faithfulness, not success. And it is worthwhile when we consider the reward of seeing the Savior.